Hello and welcome to I Don't Want to Leave. I'm your host, Tom Rouse. Thank you for being here. Now, today's episode, the events described herein are from a trip that I took with my dad, Bertus Rouse, to India and Pakistan in March and April of 1995. These are my personal recollections and excerpts from my journal. It's called Please Don't Die in Pakistan. I hope you enjoy. Be right back. I Don't Want to Leave podcast where I share musings, writings, blogs, music, and more. I'm your host, Tom Rouse. You never know what you might hear, so stick around and I hope you enjoy. The trouble started right at the very beginning. My dad and I heard the boarding call, and we turned to say goodbye to our family. Kendall, my eight-year-old, and Zach, who was five, began to cry, and Hannah, who was two, didn't really understand what was going on. I honestly considered not going. I hugged them tight, and then we both hugged my mom and walked toward the gate. My dad began to struggle right away as he descended the stairs, stumbling on a few steps so that I had to assist him down. We had to go down some stairs, walk across a short section of tarmac, and then ascend the stairs to a small commuter plane. It was one of those things where, looking back, we should have known, but we were too excited about this trip. Three weeks in India and Pakistan, helping with churches there. Once aboard, Dad had trouble maneuvering in the small walkway. There wasn't enough room in the overhead bins to place our entire carry-on luggage, but There were a few empty seats in the back, and the stewardess was nice enough to allow us to stow some of our luggage there. We were on our way to Nashville to meet up with Doug Phillips, who would accompany us on our trip. I was sincerely hoping he didn't have any issues boarding, since he had sent us his passport several weeks ago, as we had needed it to apply for our visas. Doug and his wife, Rosalie, met us as we deplaned. After a 45-minute wait, we boarded again, this time on a 767 luxury liner for a non-stop flight to London. The lady at the counter had assigned us the bulkhead seat, saying there was more leg room there, but there was actually less. We couldn't even stretch out our legs. But we did okay, actually managing to grab a few hours sleep on the flight. Customs in London are eerily similar, in my experience, to customs in New Orleans. Walk some, queue for a bit, walk some more, queue again, walk a little more, and then queue again. All due respect to the English for their queuing expertise, and I do apologize for the Hitchhiker's Guide reference. It seemed appropriate. We were waiting at the airport for a friend of Doug's to arrive, and it seemed he was running late, so I began to ask directions to the Foreign Missions Club, our accommodations for the night during our 24-hour layover. As soon as I had directions, 
Doug's friend Mike showed up with his family, his wife Laura and four daughters, Ashley, Sarah, and Caitlin, all under the age of 10. After about two hours, we finally reached the Foreign Missions Club and shared lunch with Mike and his family. As we were getting settled in, we noticed that a piece of my dad's luggage was missing. So I told him and Doug to rest and I would locate the wayward suitcase. Several phone calls later, I eventually located it back at Gatwick Airport, still on the luggage carousel. I flagged a taxi to return to Gatwick to retrieve the baggage and tour the city. Now, some of you may know this, but I have always loved the Sherlock Holmes stories. So, after picking up my dad's luggage, I decided to take the tube and visit 221B Baker Street and tour the city on my own. As it turns out, though, 221B does not exist. Well, Baker Street exists, but the numbering is different. So, someone turned the building that was closest to that address into a museum and gift shop. I did purchase a deer stalker cap while there. I don't remember such a cap from the stories, but Basil Rathbone made it an icon in all of his Sherlock Holmes movies, so I had to have one. Sadly, it's been lost to time. And while out, I visited Trafalgar Square, saw the guards at Buckingham Palace, and rode the tube some more before returning to the Foreign Missions Club for supper. I would have loved to have had more time, but it seems the English are exacting about supper time, so I arrived back at the club just in time to shower and dress for the evening meal. We had found out about the Foreign Missions Club during our research for this trip, an ecumenical, non-denominational club offering short-term accommodations to all who were dedicated to Christian missionary endeavors. Housed in the Highbury Center, they have been serving ministers, missionaries, overseas visitors, and their families since 1893. Now, the evening meal had the feel of a bed and breakfast as we shared a table with an Anglican chaplain and his wife from Australia, a Baptist missionary to South Africa, most recently visiting British Columbia, but originally from England, and afterwards we visited with an Assembly of God minister and his father on their way to Jerusalem. The next morning, after an early breakfast, we awaited our taxi for the ride to Heathrow Airport. The driver had not realized we had so much luggage and ended up charging us more for the ride since we had to share the back seat with some of it. We eventually arrived and had to rush since the luggage issue had taken up precious time. After rushing and being the last passengers on the plane, we still had another 20-minute wait on air traffic to clear up. We were booked on Gulf Air out of Bahrain, and the aircraft was extremely advanced for the mid-90s, with monitors that would drop down from the ceiling showing an animated flight path, updates on flight info, movies, cartoons, sitcoms, news, and more. Now, there was a one-hour stop in Bahrain where we stayed aboard, and then a layover in Abu Dhabi to await the flight into Delhi. Now, to say the airport in Abu Dhabi is breathtaking would be an understatement. It was the most opulent building I think I have ever had the chance to walk into. From the air, it looked as if the mothership for an extraterrestrial race had landed, 
and on the inside, the main atrium shape reminded me of what the inside of a massively enormous donut might look like. But everywhere you looked, the building sparkled. It was bright, open, and extremely luxurious. It seemed as if no expense were spared, even in the minutest detail. Lavish and lush, as if the Arabians were flaunting their wealth to the world unabashed and unashamed. We walked through the terminal in wide-eyed amazement while looking for the gate for our flight to Delhi. While walking, we purchased postcards, filled them out, and found a place to mail them. We arrived at our gate and boarded the plane, a large, wide-body aircraft, and were waved over to the opposite aisle by one of the stewardesses. Seating is open, so you're welcome to sit in business class if you like, she greeted us. We decided that we would like it. As it was still a Gulf Air flight, we had the same monitors that would come down from the ceiling, but we also had the added bonus in business class of a private monitor that would pull up from an armrest. But while awaiting takeoff, I noticed a man walk in holding a small sprayer, you know, the kind with a hose and handle and he started spraying around the floor of the cabin. I was told he was an exterminator, assuring that we didn't have to worry about insects or any bugs while in flight. We arrived in Delhi at around 5 a.m. and were greeted by our contact, D.C. Kaushal. He arrived in what he called a Jeep, but it looked more like a minivan to me. I jumped in that with the luggage, and my dad, Doug, and D.C. followed in a taxi, and we drove for about an hour and arrived at D.C.'s home. It is always an adventure the first time you arrive in a country you've never been. You have no idea how far you have to drive, which direction you're going, nor when you will arrive at your destination until your driver tells you you can get out now. <laughs> so... We chatted for a few minutes, and D.C. offered to call my mother so Dad could speak to her while breakfast was being prepared. After breakfast, D.C. took me to the Indian Airlines office to confirm tickets we had purchased to travel to Rapur. On our way, we traveled in what they call a scooter, which was actually what I would have called a moped, one of the primary modes of transportation in India. Along with the scooter, one shares the road with cars, trucks, rickshaws, auto rickshaws, uh, I would call that mopeds with covered seats on the rear so the two adults can just barely squeeze into it, <laughs> and people. Intersections are nothing more than parking lots where all of the above compete for any available piece of real estate. Within this entire melee, add the fact that cattle roam the streets with abandon, and you have a typical street scene in Delhi. Oh, there are traffic lights, street signs, and painted streets, but... They mean next to nothing in the everyday life of the common resident. We arrived back at the house around noon and I napped until awakened for lunch a few hours later. Jet lag and time difference taking its toll. After a few days in Delhi, we boarded a flight to Rapur where we would be special guests at a retreat sponsored by D.C. Now, the flight to Rapport was uneventful. I was sipping some strange-tasting orange juice, they called it, and smelling something from the galley that decided for me that I had no appetite, 
all while seated next to a seat in his appropriate turban. And the terminal at the airport in Rapur could not honestly be called such a small room that was crowded by the time 30 of us deplaned and filled it up. A taxi arrived, hauled us to a small hotel where we were told that our air-cooled rooms were 200 rupees. Upon asking for air conditioning, we were told 400 rupees. We paid. DC said we were cheated, but I realized we were less than 1,500 miles from the equator and it was warm. We left from Rapur in a car that reminded me of an old Ford Moonshiner's car. Suicide doors, black paint, and barely enough room for all of us adults to squeeze into. We drove about five hours to the south, and some of that through bona fide jungle. We took a break in the heart of the jungle, thankfully it was a paved road we were on, and watched a group of monkeys playing back and forth across the road. Our destination was a village called Darangar where we were to visit a children's home, or what they called a hostel, that was under construction. Then we were taken to the current children's home for a short visit, and then to a village called Baramund. Now, Baramund was a mud hut village, thatched roofs and all, but the mud was not from a river or pond. Without getting into detail, let's just say that milk is not the only product from a cow that is used in the village. The entire village was paved with it, and they even made what I can only describe as curbs around each hut for sitting. We were escorted to one hut and asked to sit side by side on a bed. They served us curry chicken, or at least I think it was chicken, and rice. And there was only one spoon in the entire village, and that was the serving spoon that they used to dole out the food onto our plates. These plates had raised edges of about one inch around, uh, reminding me of offering plates in churches. And we had to be trained to eat with our right hand, since the left is used for other purposes. Keeping our fingers together, we were shown how to cup our right hand and scoop the food towards our mouth. It was actually easier than it sounds. Plus, in all my travels, I do not ever remember eating such good food. I have eaten in four- and five-star Michelin restaurants, and they do not compare to the simple fare that was shared with me in that little mud hut village of Baramund. We put Baramund in our rear view, returned to Dharamgar, and then back to Rapur to catch a flight back to Delhi. Before catching the flight, another small thing happened that should have clued us in that something was wrong. My dad lost some money. That may not sound like an issue, but my dad was a veteran when it comes to travel safety, and losing money was outside his character. Again, we should have noticed, but we didn't. Delhi was only on our itinerary for the day, so we boarded a late evening train for a trip north to Ferraspur, Punjab. The first-class accommodation sleeper car reminded me of the Agatha Christie story, The Orient Express, 
or the myriad of Sherlock Holmes stories where they rode trains. This railway was from another time, and I loved every minute of the journey. Now, there were several villages on our whirlwind tour through Punjab, and after having been in the province for a day or two, my dad awakened one morning with a hemorrhage in one eye. It was only covering about half of his eye, but he could still see. He was feeling some exhaustion, so he stayed in bed all that day and the next. He felt a little better after resting for two days, but the hemorrhage was still there. Of course, had we even mentioned getting him to a doctor, I'm sure he would have refused. We boarded the train again for the trip back to Delhi, and unfortunately, the sleeper car was not as nice as our first one, so our Indian host, DC, made a ruckus with the conductor until we were given a cleaner one. When we returned to Delhi, we began to take my dad's health situation a little more seriously. Though, hindsight being 2020, not serious enough. It was decided that we would curtail some of the schedule for the next leg of our trip in Pakistan and possibly shorten the length of the stay there, possibly heading home earlier than anticipated. But again, we didn't take it seriously enough, and by the time we did, it was too late. We had only been in India for 15 days when we decided to take a break and be tourists. My dad and I took a tour bus from Delhi to Agra, the home of the Taj Mahal and the Agra Fort and Palace. Our tour guide was named Alm, and the bus was filled with tourists from the U.S., Sweden, Australia, and a few Europeans, and our first stop was the Taj Mahal. The Taj is what you see is what you get. Cameras were not allowed inside, but if you've seen a picture, you've seen the Taj Mahal. Now, granted, a picture still does not capture the awesomeness of the Taj, but that is all there is to see. Dad sat at the entrance on a bench, citing he needed to rest, and encouraged me to go on in. I walked the grand walkway down to the monument, walked to the towers at each corner, and then into the temple in the center. I entered into a stark square room and there were two large plain stone blocks with no adornment whatsoever and was told by our guide Om that these two blocks were copies of the actual graves that were located in the room below. We descended the stairs to find another stark square room with more blocks of stone that did look exactly like the ones above. I'm sorry, but I was not impressed. Yes, the Taj itself is impressive. Yes, it is awesome to look at. But as the old saying goes, that's all there is and there ain't no more. After collecting my dad, our tour group left the Taj and headed across the river to the Agra Fort and Palace, which is a much different story. Massive gates leading to massive courtyards, leading to more massive gates and more massive courtyards. It would take weeks and possibly months to explore all that Agra Fort has to offer. While there, we witnessed a Bollywood production crew working on a film before Om hustled us on to the next courtyard. After just a few hours and maybe a tenth of the fort explored, it was time to return to our tour bus and return to Delhi.
The next day, we rushed to the airport to fly to Islamabad, Pakistan through Lahore. On the connecting flight, it was discovered that this flight had been overbooked and I was bumped to a later one. Dad and Doug flew on while I waited for that next flight. I arrived and experienced much cooler temps than in India. Doug was there to greet me. We found my dad and our host, Rashid, and his family. The next morning, Dad slept in because he was still feeling out of sorts, and a friend of Rashid's, Dr. Salim, checked on my dad about noon. What I haven't mentioned yet, and you may already know if you know my family, is that my dad was diabetic. He was diagnosed sometime in the mid-60s when not much was known about the disease. Back then, his blood sugar would be checked a couple of times a year, but by the 90s, Dad had his own monitor and could check it himself. However, when the doc came to visit, Dr. Selim took over that duty. The next day, we flew to Faslabad, a city of over 5 million people that I had never even heard of. Dad said he started feeling bad again, as he put it, before we boarded the flight, and thankfully it was a short flight. We were met at the airport by a bishop of the Church of Pakistan, John Samuel, and taken to his home. While there, my dad's health began to worsen. The bishop sent a man in to press him. I had no clue what that meant, but it was literally pressing. My dad lay on his stomach, and the man would take both hands together and press my dad's back, pushing down rhythmically for about ten minutes, rest a moment, and then repeat the process. The next morning, I woke my dad, and he said he was still very tired and that his blood sugar had not gone down after his last shot. Doug and I started discussing getting him home. Later that morning, my dad said his symptoms felt like malaria, body aches, fever, etc. We made the decision that it was definitely time to go home. A doctor was called in to see my dad. After I detailed what had been going on, he examined him and said he needed rest and antibiotics, which were readily obtained. Dad's blood sugar had come down and he was feeling somewhat better, but we weren't out of the woods as yet. The doctor also suggested something to eat and they brought my dad some cornflakes with warmed milk. One bite and he began vomiting. After the vomiting spell was over, he laid down to rest. Within an hour or so, the vomiting started again. I began calling to get a flight home as soon as possible. I tried calling my mom and couldn't get through. It was decided that Rashid and I would travel to the airport the next morning to arrange transport. Unfortunately, Dad started getting dizzy, then vomiting some more. Travel plans would have to be postponed for a bit as I knew I had to get him to a hospital. Rashid arranged for a van to take us and we firemen carried my dad to the van. It turns out that our destination was actually a clinic and they had no wheelchairs for my dad, so an orderly hoisted my dad over his shoulder and carried him in. He was laid on a table to await a doctor. When one finally arrived, he said my dad needed injections so we waited for those in a room. After a little while, he was given a room and a nurse set his IV and began the injections. At this point, 
we knew we could not leave until a doctor had cleared him for travel, so all we could do was wait. Our Pakistani friends went above and beyond the call of duty in their service to my dad. He was never without someone to call on 24 hours a day, even to the point of a bedside companion during the entire ordeal. The compassion they lavished upon my dad was beyond comprehension. After some small improvement, we left the clinic in an ambulance and were taken to Rashid's brother-in-law, Altof Khan's house, to rest, but that only lasted a moment. As we laid Dad down on a bed, he began vomiting again and asked to be taken to a hospital. We took him to Allied Hospital and they immediately began working on him, IVs, blood tests, etc. He began to stabilize for the first time in days. I left him for a while to call my mom and the insurance company to see how soon we could get home. When I returned, he was being transferred to a private room. We were hoping now he could start to recover. However, we were not out of the woods yet. Allied Hospital was not what I would call a sanitized hospital. As I walked through to my dad's room, I could see dust and dirt accumulated in corners. Bathrooms smelled as if they hadn't been cleaned in weeks, and some windows did not even have glass. I asked Rashid and Altoff why they chose to bring my dad to such a filthy hospital, and was actually impressed by their thinking and was ashamed of myself for not trusting them. Rashid answered, We could have taken your father to a cleaner hospital. There are several that are much nicer, but they are private hospitals. The doctors only show up in the mornings to see their patients, and that may be the only time they show up during the day. Allied is a teaching hospital, and as such, they have doctors on the premise 24 hours a day. We felt your father needed full access to a doctor whenever he needed one. We regret that it is such a terrible place, but we believe he will receive much better care here. They knew their city. They knew their health care providers. I would have to trust them to get us out of here. The director of Allied Hospital, Dr. Hashmi, began to take a personal interest in Dad and made it his personal goal to make sure my dad's health improved enough to travel home. I was on the phone daily and sometimes more frequently with the insurance company and my mother. I was not only giving updates on dad, but hearing from them any steps we needed to take on our end. A week went by and my dad was improving. Dr. Hashmi was ready to discharge him, but we didn't have a flight book. As we were working out the details, dad tried to eat. It did not sit well with him and within moments, he was vomiting again, so it was decided for him to stay at least another night and get him stabilized again. The next morning I was told that Dad had vomited so much blood during the night that he had been given a transfusion. A friend of Altoff's volunteered as he had the same blood type as Dad, but also in Altoff's words, in the blood banks you have no idea who has given the blood. 
This way we know my friend is healthy with no diseases. As disturbing as that was, I was more alarmed in the casual way they informed me that Dad had to be resuscitated at one point. And on top of that, no one bothered to come get me to be here for any of it. I should have been there. I remember screaming in my head to my dad, Please don't die in Pakistan. Thankfully, he didn't. But day turned into day as we called and faxed everyone we could, home, insurance, and anyone we thought could help. We were told seemingly daily that everything had been worked out and we were finally going home, only to be told that things had changed. Once we were told that a medevac helicopter would be flying out of Delhi, India, to provide transport to Karachi to get us home, only to be denied entry into Pakistani airspace. As Altov once told me during our ordeal, India is the big brother, Pakistan is the little brother, and they are always fighting. During this time of back and forth with the powers that be, Dad would be getting better for a bit, but then start vomiting again. Finally, we had a few days of Dad being stable and seeming to get much better, so we were released from the hospital. While we had only been there a few weeks, it felt like an eternity. We were actually leaving and going home. Well, we thought we were. Our insurance had procured a room for my dad at Charity Hospital in London, England. Our goal was to get there as soon as humanly possible, though we experienced a minor setback before we were to leave Allied Hospital. We were told that Dad had begun vomiting again during the night, but they had stabilized him enough to travel, so we left. We rushed to the airport to board a Pakistani Airlines flight to Karachi. They offered food, but Dad wasn't feeling well enough to eat. At Karachi, we were rushing again to make the next flight to London, but we were a ticket short. I acquired the ticket, a wheelchair for my dad, and made our way to the gate, only to be stopped by security. The officer looked at my dad and asked, How are you feeling? Not too good, my dad answered. Well, I'm sorry, sir, but I cannot let you board the flight if you're sick. I almost lost it. I explained the situation to him in detail. We have a room waiting for him at Charity in London. We have to get on this flight. I have to hand it to the security guard. He never lost his composure or professionalism. Sir, the flight plan for this flight goes over Beirut and other hostile locations. If your dad happened to have an emergency situation and we were forced to land, would you want your dad being taken care of in one of those locations? Uh, no, I don't guess I would. Thank you for your time, I glumly responded as we walked away wondering what to do next. I was completely dumbfounded and confused. Here we were in Karachi, Pakistan. No contacts, no plans, and no idea what to do next. I wheeled my dad back in the direction we had come, 
pausing only long enough for him to vomit into a large tree planter and hoping no one had seen, and moved him to a bench so he could lay down. Luckily, the bench was next to a bank of phones, and I could keep an eye on Dad while I made some phone calls. Doug, meanwhile, took our passports to the security checkpoint we had just come through to make sure we could get back out. Well, we made it back to the front entrance and awaited a taxi. One of the phone calls had produced that much, at least. The taxi, thankfully a van, arrived a few moments later, and we were rushed to the emergency room of the Aga Khan University Hospital. The ride was nerve-wracking and anxiety-producing, not only for the way the driver wheeled through Karachi, but even more alarming, Dad was getting worse. He was gasping for air so badly that he was leaning his head out the window, trying to breathe. Arriving at the ER with what felt like only moments to spare, we pulled into the driveway of the most opulent and affluent hospitals I have ever seen. Expertly manicured lawns and shrubbery, perfectly paved asphalt in the drive, and a rush of doctors and nurses coming to our aid as we pulled to a stop. I quickly explained as much as I could. Amazingly, it seemed like every single person spoke English, and they began working on my dad as they pulled him from the taxi and onto the gurney. Our insurance company had a man waiting for me at the hospital. He was a local travel agent who had secured rooms for us at the local Sheraton and would be taking Doug and I there as soon as Dad was stable. After several hours, they had Dad stabilized and were ready to move him to a room. The doctor told me that Dad had pneumonia, diabetic ketoacidosis, and gastrointestinal bleeding. I paid a deposit on his room with what rupees I had on me and waited for them to transfer him to the special care unit. That room was nicer than most hotel rooms I've seen. Marble counters, sparkling fixtures, and clean. I mean spotless. I knew we had finally arrived at a place where Dad could get stable enough to get home. I couldn't stay in the room with Dad, so spent most of the night in the waiting area. Dad's nurse came at some point to tell me that Dad was resting so I could go to the hotel. Doug had gone on earlier in the evening, secured our rooms and, and a private driver so we wouldn't have to hail taxis every time we needed to go somewhere. The next morning we enjoyed a full breakfast. No continental breakfast at the Sheraton in Karachi, no sir. Then walked a few blocks to the American consulate only to find out that they didn't see Americans until early afternoon. We returned to the hospital and were allowed in to see Dad for just a few minutes, but he told us that he was already feeling better. They had even given him a bath and let him brush his teeth. We all began to feel some of the tension of the past weeks leaving us. So... Doug and I strolled through the grounds of this massive and beautiful hospital. We found out that Aga Khan had donated millions to build this hospital, hence his name on it. Oh, and if you don't remember your recent history, Ali Khan, Aga's son, was the husband of a certain movie star named Rita Hayworth. Now, we were allowed in a few more times to see Dad before leaving to try the consulate again.
visit to the consulate was a bit anticlimactic. After trying to explain our situation to a woman behind the glass counter, a man approached us, introduced himself, and I'm not including his name, just in case he's more than just a consulate worker, and asked us to follow him. We went into another room, and he explained that they knew all about our situation. The hospital stays, the denied medevac flight, everything. But they thought we were already going home by now. He asked how my dad was doing, had us fill out some information cards, offered us any help they could give, then wished us well and sent us on our way. However, one thing he mentioned has stuck with me all these years. He said that there had been some recent terrorist activity in the area, and they had been keeping an eye on every American citizen in Karachi and in Pakistan. So, why had they let us struggle on the way we had for so long? Something happened a few days later that made me remember what he had said. Some of our luggage had been left in Islamabad, but obviously at first we weren't that concerned about it. However, since things had stabilized with my dad, I revisited the consulate and the same man helped me arrange transport for our missing luggage. We returned to the hospital to find Dad in much better spirits, though not completely ready to travel. However, they said he would be moved to a private room the next day. Things were definitely looking up. I returned to the hotel, having been told by the nurse to return the next morning around 10 to be there as they transferred Dad to a private room. I ate some supper, watched a little TV that I could understand, and crashed. My room phone ringing around 11 p.m. woke me out of a sound sleep. It was my dad asking why I wasn't there with him. I told him why, and he asked me to come to the hospital. They had already moved him to a private room. Feeling guilty, I replied, Dad, I've already sent the driver home for the night. I don't have any way to get there. So he asked if I could get Mom to call him. I told him I could do that, so I hung up and started trying to get through to my mom. It took me several tries, but I did, and she promised to try to call the hospital. It took me some time to fall back to sleep, but I finally did. The next morning, I found Dad in a much better mood. Doug and I were taking turns being with him or being at the hotel. Even though it was a private room, they only allowed one of us at a time, so the next few days, with Dad getting better, Doug and I kept up that routine. And then, the whole world stopped breathing. I woke up on the morning of April 19 to the news of the Alfred Murrah building in Oklahoma City being bombed and so many lives lost. According to the news broadcast that morning, it was suspected to have been carried out by Pakistani terrorists, and we were in Pakistan. I immediately contacted the consulate and was told to stay put. For our own safety, we couldn't leave the hotel or the hospital. We watched that nightmarish scenario unfold with rising concern. Thankfully, it only took a day or so for the authorities to figure out what had actually happened, and Timothy McVeigh was arrested. I don't know the details. I didn't actually care about the details at the time. We were just ready to leave Pakistan.
As that drama was winding down, Dad's doctor proclaimed him ready to travel, so we made our arrangements, only to have them canceled at the last minute. We had checked out of our hotel and moved to the hospital. However, they didn't realize we had moved out of the hospital, but then they never asked. We slept in Dad's room that night, expecting to leave the next morning, but our flight tickets didn't come in until that next afternoon. We finally got Dad's discharge papers, left the hospital, stopped in for a final prescription, and made our way to the airport. Ironically, the same security officer that had stopped us on our first try a week earlier met us at the entrance and could tell a marked difference in my dad's demeanor. He actually escorted us to the gate. We boarded the Gulf airplane for, finally, our flight home, but as we began to take our seats in business class, a stewardess came up to inform us that our tickets had been upgraded to first class. We flew to Muscat and then to Bahrain and finally on to London with no layovers. In London, there was no room waiting at Charity Hospital at this point because it was no longer needed. The time at Aga Khan Hospital had so completely rejuvenated my dad that he was able to make it all the way home. We were met in London by a brand new Mercedes, driven by a chauffeur named Neil who drove us to our hotel. We had talked about taking some time to look around London, but we were all exhausted from our weeks in India and Pakistan, so we just stayed in the hotel to await our flight home. We said our goodbyes to Doug in Nashville and continued our final flight home to Mobile. We were greeted there by our wives, family, and a host of friends and well-wishers. My journal ends at that point with another 20 minutes or so and we should be landing. This is one of the best and most exciting days of our life. For you see, our nightmare was finally over. I do remember someone pushing a wheelchair up to the ramp as we deplaned and assisting my dad into it. I remember pushing him up into the terminal and until we saw my mom. She walked up and hugged him tightly and then me. I remember her taking the handles to the wheelchair and pushing him away. I remember being greeted by my wife and kids. Everything else is a blur. I returned home to my hammock and would just lay there and swing. In 2021, I received a Facebook message from someone I had worked with after my time in India and Pakistan. He said he had something he wanted to send me, some things I had left in an office that I had moved out of over 20 years ago. I gave him my address and several days later a package arrived, a box with two notebooks and a photo album. The notebooks were my journals from that trip and the album was full of pictures from the trip as well. I had no idea I had even lost them. Soon after, I was told that a friend was writing my dad's biography and wanted me to tell about this trip since I was the only surviving participant. It seemed that I could now. I had forgotten so much of the trip, and my journals brought it all back to me. 
now I can tell the story. Thank you so much for joining us today on I Don't Want to Leave. I hope you enjoyed the story today. I know it was it was a hard one to live through and a hard one to write and a hard one to share. So if you enjoyed it, please leave us a message down below. Uh, if you like what I'm doing here, could you please share this on uh, social media? I'd certainly appreciate it. And until next time, this is Tom Rouse saying thank you again for listening and see you soon on I don't want to leave. This episode is copyright 2023, Tom Rouse and Tomlin Productions. Thank you for listening. Thank you.